Well, a long time ago, I used to live in Papua New Guinea, believe it or not, and so did Philip, and so did my mum and dad, of course. And uh, the Queen came to visit us, not us personally, she came to visit Papua New Guinea. <laughs> and um, we were privileged enough to go see the Queen. Now, I don't know if you remember that. Do you remember that? Philip has no memory of the Queen. But I remember the Queen. And um, Papua New Guinea, actually, for all of you who do not know your Papua New Guinean history, was actually a kind of a territory of Australia. I mean, it, the long history of Papua New Guinea is kind of like an island, you know, with tribes, but then colonised by the Germans and the British and the Dutch. The island got divided up into three, and then after World War II, the whole eastern side, because after World War I, was it after World War I, I think, the whole eastern side, which is now Papua New Guinea, the Germans kind of like lost their, this is, things happen after major wars. So England was in charge of the whole right-hand side, and they decided that Australia would be the boss. So Australia was kind of like watching over it, but in 1975, it got handed back to become its own country, and so we moved there in 1980, and the Queen came to visit in 1985, and there was this big shindig, 10-year anniversary celebration. I was just a kid in school. Every kid got given a little Papua New Guinean flag to wave, and a uh, big moment for a, a brand new country. And so the Queen drove down the main street of Port Moresby, and there must have been what would have felt like a million people there. I'm sure there's probably not a million people in the whole country. I don't know what the population is. But it just felt like everyone was there, and I got to see the Queen go past. So that's my Queen story. <laughs> and I thought um, we would talk a little bit. Perfect time to share that story because of her passing this week. But I just have been thinking about it all, and... Um, what a wonderful gift that that woman was to the world. And uh, I'm sure you all appreciate her just as much as I do, or maybe more. But it's just amazing to me, we watched a documentary on the Queen, and it was showing, you know, here she is shaking Winston Churchill's hand. And you, you, in my mind, you know, I'm born in the 70s, Winston Churchill is this guy from, like, ancient times. <laughs> he's, he's from old, old history, but here's the Queen shaking Winston Churchill's hand. Here's the Queen shaking all the Prime Ministers of England's hands from then until now. All the Presidents of America from then until now. All the Prime Ministers of Australia from then. Like, it's just unbelievable, this one woman who's like the repository of the entire world's history and wisdom and knowledge. It's like, and the other day, of course, a new Prime Minister gets elected in England. This is Elizabeth Truss, or Liz Truss. And I hope she does a great job for England. And she goes to meet the Queen. And it's, I think it would be so daunting to go meet the Queen as a new Prime Minister. Because she has met with every Prime Minister of England every week for, since 1952. And you know that whatever issue you face in Parliament, the Queen has seen it all before. <laughs> She's just going to be like the, you know, the repository of all knowledge for whatever question you have to face. And uh, just a remarkable woman, and yet so controlled in what she says. Anyway, the more I think about her, the more I'm just amazed. And I think she's a she was a blessing to the world. And yet I stop and I think, you know what? She's a blessing to the world because the Lord put her there. 
It's the Lord who blessed the world because the Lord knows what he's doing. And I thought about this and I thought, God knows how to put the right people in place so that they are a blessing. And there's a scripture and I found it, it's in Psalm 75, verse six to seven, and it says, no one from the east or the west or from the desert can exalt themselves, but as God who judges, he brings one up, he, he brings one down and he exalts another. So the Lord lifts people up at the right time. He knows the right people to put in place. And um, when we were watching that documentary of the Queen, you know, she was never supposed to be the Queen. Some of you all know royal history, so she was just going to be, you know, another one of the princesses or, you know, a duchess or something. But, you know, there was abdications and all sorts of things that shifted it around. And I think, I bet you the Lord was in all of that putting the right person on the throne because the Lord knows how to exalt the right people. And of course, it says here that the Lord takes people down too. Thank God for that. I'm not, I don't, not thinking of anyone in particular, but I just know there are some people that shouldn't be in charge and thank God he sorts it all out. I'm very grateful for that. And I just think the Lord is, is going to give us other wonderful people in the future too and I'm appreciative and I trust him. So over the last few years especially, the world's been changing, right? Lots of changes going on. And I guess the three, the, the couple of the big ones would be COVID, obviously, big thing for the world. The world's completely changed. And of course this year, the war in Ukraine, and then with the Queen dying a few days ago, it just possibly for some people could give you a very unsettled feeling of like everything's just not the same and yet the, the king of all the Lord Jesus Christ is on the throne and he hasn't gone anywhere you know the Queen she gave a lot of people a feeling of settledness because it didn't matter what happened in the world the Vietnam War the Cold War the Berlin Wall falling down September 11 like didn't matter what went on the Queen was the same steady person keeping things calm well we've got a king like that the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the same person, he never changes, he's permanent, he's on the throne, he doesn't go anywhere, and unlike the Queen, he's not going to die. He's been the advice for anyone who's ever turned to him, any Prime Minister who ever wanted his advice could go to that King. It's a shame they don't all do it, but some do. And we've got a remarkable king. And if you look at Queen Elizabeth and you think any good thought about her at all, just magnify it a million times because that's what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a remarkable, remarkable king who's been there on the throne. And it doesn't matter if COVID comes along, he's still the king. It doesn't matter if war breaks out in the Ukraine, he's still the king. It doesn't matter if September, September 11 happens, anything. We were watching this documentary and it was going through the, you know, all the different periods of her life. My favourite part of the documentary was how they talked about her corgis because it said they did not know she was the queen. So they treated her like a normal person. <laughs> I loved it. I love how the corgis can be badly behaved because they don't know to mind their manners. And all uh, oh, that's just, just lovely. But they were going through all, her, all the different periods of her life and they were talking about the, the, the terrorism in Ireland, just, you know, things that were happening, even one of her family members got um, you know, assassinated. And just realizing what a remarkable person, how steady she was, how careful to not say anything that shouldn't be said. We could all learn a lesson from her. And um, 
But you could get the impression that things are getting worse. You could easily get that impression from the world the last few years, but things are actually getting better. <laughs> and so I guess that's the point that I'm going to make today and talk about for a little while, is that we've got a king on the throne. And you know, when something would go wrong, the queen would always come out with a wise word or two. And she'd often give a speech. You know, when COVID first hit, she said, she talked about how painful it was to be separated from our loved ones, but we will be with them together again, she said. And everyone felt better. <laughs> she just had that way of making people feel better. Well, the thing about the queen was, she just reacted when things went wrong, but she just reacted well. But we have a king on the throne who knows before things go wrong. And he's seen it all from the beginning to the end. And he's, he, in fact, sometimes he allows bad things to happen because he knows that a temporary bad thing will produce a longer term, way better thing. And so the Lord, in his great wisdom, is with us uh, through the things that we experience, sometimes even the difficult things, knowing the wonderful good that will come out of it. Kind of like that giving your children a, a polio vaccine when they're two years old. Momentary pain for long-term gain, that type of thing. And so we have a wonderful God who I think we can just trust and depend on. Now, I've come across this book, and I'm going to share this book with you today. I know my dad has been saying for years that the world's getting better, but I want to... And this book, by the way, I'm going to add to the church library, and you're not allowed to borrow it. We're going to leave it over there, and if you want to look through the book, you're most welcome. You just have to stay there when you look through the book. And there's a chair. You can sit there and look through the book. And uh, this book is called 10 Global Trends That Every Smart Person Should Know. Do you consider yourself a smart person? If so, this is the book for you. <laughs> and, um, and it says, and many others that you will find interesting. There are actually about 100 graphs in this book of all sorts of things going on in the world right now. Now, if you, if you only get your impressions of the world from the evening news, you'd, be, you'd think that the world was falling to pieces. And a lot of people do think the world is falling to pieces. Or, because of the way that algorithms are constructed on YouTube and Facebook, if you start showing interest in a certain weird thing, then Facebook and YouTube think, oh, you're interested in that particular weird thing, so they give you more of it. So if you get into conspiracy theories, you know that the whole world is controlled by the Rockefellers and you know, they're pulling the strings and, and everything's going downhill and stuff like that or Flat Earth Society, or any of that stuff, once you start showing an interest in it, you'll get more and more and more of it. And then you have a thing called confirmation bias going on, because the more you hear about it, the more it must be true. And you can go down a completely wrong track and have no idea that the world's not like that at all. The world, in fact, is getting better, despite the impressions you get from the evening news. I remember we used to visit Mr. Eddie in Bethesda, he was the, our elderly neighbour, and all he ever did was watch the news, because when you're stuck in an aged care home, there's nothing to do. Watch TV 100% of the time. So he, we'd go visit him, and he would say, um, the world's getting bad, isn't it? Well, <laughs> because all he saw was the news, you know, so there'd be a bushfire in California, and there'd be 20 houses burnt down or something, and he would say, oh, the world's getting bad. But that doesn't count the, you know, 200 million houses that did not burn down this week. And um, I always said to him, look, life right now in Rockhampton's pretty good. How many people got murdered today? 
Nobody. How many houses burnt down today? None. You know, life just goes on and it's pretty sweet. And Rockhampton's kind of like the same as most places. Most places are pretty normal day by day by day. The world's a pretty good place. But the news are looking for the interesting story and they've got the whole world to find one from. So if there happens to be a fire somewhere and a few houses get burnt down, shove it on the news. And um, so you can get the, the collection of all the world's worst events you know, every day on the news and give you the impression that the world's a terrible place when the world is in fact getting better and better all the time. So what I thought is I would show you just a few of the graphs in here, just six of them today, just to give you a bit of a sense, because there's like about a hundred in here. And uh, so gonna, I've just taken photos out of the book and I'm allowed, I think, to use up to 10% of a book without causing a copyright issue. And if it is a copyright issue, I'd just like to mention that this is 10 Global Trends, and it's by Ronald Bailey and Marion L. Tupi. And you can probably buy that on a good bookstore somewhere. So it's a plug for those people who've put a lot of hard work into rounding up all this information for our benefit. So we're gonna just put these, put these photos up one by one by one and just have a quick look at them. So this first photo is a graph of extreme poverty in the world. Extreme poverty used to be um, counted on this Bojignong Morrison scale as people living on less than a dollar per day. That's the blue line. So you can see in the bottom corner here, 1830, which is, you know, more than 100 years ago, 82% of the world lived on less than a dollar a day, if you account for inflation and all of that, 80%. That's four out of five people. But look, as time goes along, that's falling, 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 and then it gets to a point where they don't measure it the same way anyway, so that scale stops, but the green one starts. So the World Bank is now measuring extreme poverty as people who live on less than $1.90 a day. And look at that, it's falling, 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 to where is it, 2010? It's about 7% of the world now. And the same book says that they're predicting by 2030 that extreme poverty will be gone. So that's only, what, eight more years? They're predicting that in eight more years, extreme poverty will be done. So there'll still be poverty, just not extreme, extreme poverty. But if you look at a graph like that, it didn't matter where you lived in the world about 100 years ago, you would have been extremely poor. If you'd lived in, and I remembered reading somewhere recently and they said, um, if you'd lived in Portugal in about 1950, now we think of Portugal as kind of like a modern European country, you would have been very poor. The average European would have been a lot poorer than what you imagine. So there's this trend of poverty eradication in the world. Isn't that amazing? I find that remarkable. The world's heading in one direction. People are getting, people are better off every day. And uh, you may not notice that because you're already better off. And um, so it's not to say there's no more needs, you know, we get to 2030 and we can relax. No, it's not saying that. <laughs> there's still people with needs, but the world's heading in the right direction. Let's put up the second graph. This is interesting. This is food supply. Because you get the impression that people are running out of food. There's actually more food or more calories per person per day available than ever before. So at the same time, the world's actually increasing in population there's actually more calories per person per day 
going up all the time because we're getting better at farming, we're getting better at producing more food per acre, we're getting better at um, managing the, the way that food gets to people. So look at that. There's more, look, and you can see Africa, the red line, compared to the world, which is above Africa. Africa is clearly the poorest part of the world, maybe a part of India is as well. But you can see even Africa, look at the way it's rapidly increasing. So when I was a kid, some of you would remember seeing the famines in Ethiopia. Horrible, horrible pictures of children with bones sticking out and all of that. So, well, I'm not saying there aren't still people in great need. Uh, there are still people in great need, especially in Somalia. But these types of graphs are very, very encouraging. And um, I think a big part of it is the fact that there are Christians, all, there are more and more Christians all the time who give, serve, love, pray. And of course that rubs off on non-Christians. They give love and serve, and sometimes they pray as well. So the world is increasingly being changed by the gospel. This is something my dad's always said, that the gospel is changing the world, but dad's never ever showed you any graphs. But that's because he didn't have this awesomely cool book. So um, we'll show you a few more graphs. And uh, this, this is changing now, this is environmental. We hear a lot of negative environmental stuff, and there are some things to worry about environmentally. That's true. It's not completely good news, but it's, it's not quite as bad as what they make out. If you watch the news, they make it, you make it feel like the earth is doomed and we're all not going to be here in 20 years. It's not quite as bad as that. And in fact, this graph is showing us the, the red line is how much tree cover there is in the world, and the blue line is how much tree loss there is. You notice that as time goes on since 1985 to 2015, so this is only a 20-year period, but you can see people are planting more trees and people are chopping down less trees. That's a very, very cool graph. In the newsletter a few weeks ago, I had put a link about a man called Tony Renudo. If you missed that, go back a few newsletters and find that link and click on it. That guy is a Christian, a missionary to Africa, and he's probably done more for tree growth in the earth than just about any human being. He's greened eight entire countries, basically. Um, what he's done across the, the Sahel section of Africa is unbelievable. In fact, it's worth taking a minute to tell you about him. Here's a guy who's an Australian missionary, loves the Lord, very prayerful, and he went to Africa, and he was obviously preaching the gospel, but what he wanted to do was teach Africans how to farm. He's a farmer. And he was tearing out his hair because these people um, would let their goats go on the land and the goats would just eat everything. And so everything was a desert, basically. De um, it, the Sahel region is not quite as far north as the Sahara Desert. It's kind of in that Sahara semi-arid zone. And he's trying to teach these people how to farm, but their goats are eating everything and he's tearing out his hair because he'd come along, get a bunch of Africans, show them how to plant trees. He'd come back a few months later and there's nothing. So he felt like he's wasting his life. And he's driving along in his car one day and he's so frustrated. Something happened, a flat tire or something. And he's walking along the side of the road and he's so angry at God. Why, God, did you bring me here? And he kicks this little shrub thing on the side of the road so angry that he realizes that's not a shrub, that's a full on tree. And what it was, was a tree, but the top half had been completely eaten by goats or something but the underneath was a full-on root system. What he realized is the whole 
the country that he was in, I think, was Niger or Mali, one of those countries. The whole country was a forest. What he didn't realise was there's an actual underground forest covering this whole area. The trees are actually already there. It was like a brainwave for him. And it only came because he got out of his car and was angry and he prayed and kicked, and kicked the tree. So God can handle it when you get angry and yell at him sometimes. And he's so gracious to answer your prayer while you're doing it. Just look in the Psalms, you can see there's so many Psalms that are like that. Raw emotion directed at God and yet God's so gracious. That's the God we have. So then Tony realised he didn't have to teach the Africans to plant trees, he just had to teach them to, to teach them how to let them grow. And he showed them how to let one branch grow, how to trim off the other low ones and let this central one come up. And they've now seen something like 8 or 10% forest growth in all these countries and now it's starting to rain more because you know what happens when you've got more trees, starts to change the climate. Go look that guy up. He's, he's an amazing man of God. He's a missionary, loves the Lord, but he's done more for the climate than just about anyone in the last couple of decades. And he's a Christian. You don't hear about him too much in the news, but I put him in the newsletter for your benefit. Anyway, look at that. Graphs like this show that things are not always as bad as what you think. Mind you, there are still environmental things to think about but this is encouraging. We have some more graphs. Autocracies versus democracies. Well, I think the 20th century has been a century of flux, but the democracy line is the blue one, and you can see there's a general trend of up. So generally the world is becoming more democratic as time goes along. I think that's great. That's a good sign. Let's move along to the next graph. Interstate wars worldwide. <laughs> Are we having more wars or less? I know there's a war going on right now with Ukraine and Russia, but every one of those uh, numbers is a war between two countries, and this is a graph since World War II. So you can see that at a point there in the 1960s there was five wars going on at once between five different sets of countries. But you can see it's getting less and less and less. Coming down to 2016 there was two there at one point, then one, and then none. Now there's one again. But you can see it's becoming less and less. And when Russia invaded the Ukraine, the whole world was aghast that that would happen. The way the world thinks about war has changed. We don't think it's okay to go to war anymore. That's a change in the way people think. And I would put that down to the prayers of God's people and the gospel, even though secular people would give you other reasons for that. But the fact is the world's changing. People are going to look back on this history and say, I can't believe they attacked each other back then. But you know what the Bible says in Isaiah? It says they will beat their swords into plough shields and all of that. Well, that's what's going on. The gospel's having an effect and people are becoming more and more peaceful. I think I've got one more graph here. Deaths from natural disasters. So, you know, a cyclone used to happen and kill 100,000 people, but look, since 1900 through to now, less and less and less people die from natural disasters. And um, right now in Pakistan, there's terrible flooding happening. And in the news, they said that a few thousand people have drowned. That's obviously very horrible and very terrible. But a hundred years ago, it wouldn't have killed just a, thousand, a few thousand people. It would have killed maybe a million people or two million people. So. The world is changing, and I'm gonna, we're going to send out an email about those floods in Pakistan because there are te there are big needs there, and we've heard we've had some news from Boaz about you know, ways that we might be able to help. 
put some stuff in the email and send that out to you tomorrow. And if you would like to contribute, please do. Those are very important needs. But graphs like this, I think, are very encouraging for us to see. Is it, is it that cyclones are less dangerous than they used to be? No. It's just that people are living in better houses. People have got better communication. They know when a cyclone is coming. They get ready. So the world's becoming a better type of place for people to live in. And so it tends to be the poorer people that are affected by natural disasters. Like we had a cyclone here a few years ago. It was horrible because we all had to clean up afterwards. But that was the worst part about it. We had to clean up. No one in Rockhampton died, as far as I know. We, we, did, we did okay. One, one person died. So one person's a tragedy. We wouldn't expect that anyone would die, even though we get hit by a terrible, terrible cyclone. And I don't like cyclones because I don't like the cleanup. But I'm not for any minute afraid thinking anyone's going to die. I'm not worried about the safety of my family. We're not hopping in the car and booking it to Brisbane to get out of here. So life has gotten a whole lot better for most people. I'm not going to go through any other graphs in the book, but I'm going to mention they've got all sorts of things in here like people graphs showing you malarial deaths, deaths from malaria, just plummeting. They've got graphs showing you tuberculosis deaths, plummeting. Um, a graph here showing the war on cancer. How many people die per 100,000? It's plummeting because even though people still get cancer, there's good treatments and a lot of prevention and now there's even vaccines for certain types of cancers. And, um, there's a graph here on smoking, people who smoke. Obviously that's going down. So people are generally healthier. Um, there are graphs here on violence, and there's a graph here on the, ho the world homicide rate. How many people are murdered per 100,000? It's gone from 6.5 in 1990 down to 5.4 in 2017. So that's in the last, what, 37 years? One person less per 100,000 is dying. It's now down to five and a bit out of 100,000. So that's coming down. So the world's becoming more peaceful. Capital punishment is being eradicated in country after country after country. It's now been eradicated in 110 countries. That's increasing. The battle death rate is declining. So people in wars, even though there's still some wars, less people are dying in wars, interestingly enough. So graph after graph, even they're graphing genocides here. There's less genocides. Apparently there used to be a lot of genocides in the world. Isn't that a terrible thing? Here's an interesting one. Military spending by GDP, countries that spend money on their military budgets, it's just falling. Countries are not spending as much money on buying tanks and stuff and, and things like that, like they used to. And, um, and the percentage of armies as a part of the population is shrinking. So anyway, lots of interesting graphs in here. You can go through them one by one by one and just realise, wow, the world's actually a lot better place than what it was not even not that long ago. And I think, they talk in the news about tipping points, I think the gospel has reached a tipping point. You know, they talk about climate tipping points. Well, I think the gospel has reached a tipping point where things have started, the last 100 years, things have kicked in and are now affecting the world faster and more effective than ever before. So I'm gonna read for you, with all of that in mind, this scripture from Isaiah 9, verse six to seven, this is a scripture we always read at Christmas time, but it's not actually a Christmas scripture. 
so to, so to speak. It's really a gospel scripture. Let us read it. For unto us a child is born, that's Jesus, to, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and of peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So the Lord Jesus reigns on his throne from that time and forever. He's actually on a throne and he's not ever going to get off that throne. And it says in this, this part of the verse, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So I know a lot of people say, oh, that's talking about heaven. When we get to heaven, he's going to reign there forever. But no, he's actually reigning now. His reign began when he ascended into heaven. You know, he rose again from the, de from the dead, conquered the devil and humiliated him. But then 40 days later, he ascended to heaven and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. That's the moment he went on his throne. Right then, and he's been reigning from then until now, and the gospel has had more of an effect on the world ever since. And just like the scripture, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Very, very encouraging. A lot of people can't see it because they just they just don't know how to look. But to me, it's so obvious that the world, that the hand of the Lord is on the world. It just is. It's like that song we used to sing in Sunday school, he's got the whole world in his hands. And he really, really does. Now, this book, by the way, is a completely secular book. The people that wrote this book are humanists. Do you know what humanists are? These are people that don't follow God. They think everything can be explained by reason. Well, I think that reason is a gift of God. <laughs> I think reason can explain a lot of things, and I think the more reasonable you are, the more progress you will have, and I think God gives us reason, and that's part of God's blessing to the world. So thank God for reason, I say, but reason isn't the answer to everything. Reason's just one of the blessings that we have been given. These people who wrote this book, they're optimists, and uh, if you read inside the front cover some of the quotes about this book, um, there are people that say, wow, I didn't know things were going so well. It gives you reason for optimism. But having said that, these are non-Christians who put this all together. So they're not going to show you Christian information in there, but there's a lot of positive things that God's doing with the gospel that are purely measurable in Christian ways as well. I haven't brought with me a copy of Operation World, and I think the most recent copy of Operation World is 2010. But it's a book put together by Patrick Johnson, a, an amazing researcher who goes country by country by country researching the church, how big the church is, everything that God's doing. They put prayer points in there. It's a very thick book. It's expensive, but it's worth a purchase. A few years ago, we went through that book every single day for a whole year and prayed for every country in the world in our family. You know, Somalia and Sudan, we prayed for every country. And that would be a good exercise for you and give you a big heart to what God's doing. But God is doing some remarkable things purely with the gospel that you don't hear about in the news and you're not going to see in books like this. In Operation World, one of the things that astounded me was, I'm just going to give you a few examples, but one of them was the country of Mongolia 
which in 1990, up to that point, had been a part of the communist world, but in 1990 was released from the communist world, and they counted in the entire country of Mongolia, I think something like, was it four Christians? Some very low number, like unbelievably low, but within 10 years it was 100,000. It was something like remarkable growth from basically nothing to 100,000 in just 10 years. And that statistic came out of Operation World. I find that just incredibly remarkable. That's one country. Um, the biggest change in the last 100 years has almost, almost unarguably been in Africa. You cannot believe the amount of gospel progress in Africa. I would like to put up a picture, a map on the, on the screen of Africa in the 1800s. This was before David Livingstone. Now, David Livingstone lived 1830 through to oh, 1812, whatever, 1870. I think he died in the 1870s or 1880s, something like that. This was Africa. Now, you would think in the 1800s, with the, King of, with the, the English Empire and the, you know, the state of the world in Europe, you would think they would actually know what was happening in Africa. But this was the map of Africa in the middle 1800s. You notice how they don't have a clue what's going on in the bottom half of Africa? That means two things. It means, number one, Europeans hadn't been there, and it means, two, there was no gospel there. Zero Christians, that's what it means. So David Livingstone went there as a missionary. He went to South Africa as a missionary. You notice there is a little bit of colouring in at the bottom of the map. So there was, they knew a little bit about South Africa. There's a family there called the Moffat family. They were famous missionaries. They were in the South of Africa as well. David Livingstone married one of the Moffats. They, um, David Livingstone tried to be a missionary, but realised that slavery was a huge problem. And he realised that they couldn't eradicate slavery until they knew that he basically came to the conclusion we had to explore Africa. So he spent his lifetime exploring Africa that man did just about more to eradicate slavery than any other human. I know William Wilberforce did a lot, but David Livingstone opened up Africa so that slavery could be stopped right there at the, at the ground zero where it was happening. But that graph shows you that in the middle of the 1800s, in the southern half of Africa, there are basically zero Christians. Do you know how many Christians are in Africa now? It's nearly three quarters in the southern half of Africa. In 150 years, we've gone from basically zero to three quarters. You know, in the nation of Uganda, 96% evangelical Christian today. Do you know the nation of Zambia? Was it the year 2000? The president of Zambia, as the new year click, clicked over, he dedicated the nation to God as an act of, you know, like endorsed act by parliament and everything, dedicating the nation to God. These, these types of things are happening in Africa. You don't hear about them on the news, but Christianity just exploding in Africa, unbelievable change. So these are the types of things that the gospel is doing. It's just incredible. It's, it's in Asia and it's in Muslim countries. Muslims don't talk about it because they, they're too embarrassed. But people are turning to Christ in Muslim countries. In our Monday morning prayer meeting, which I run on Zoom, we pray for Saudi Arabia every single Monday morning. We've been doing that since, what was it, 2014? That was the year we started the, the 6 a.m. prayer meetings. And at that time in 2014, my dad told all the leaders of those six prayer meetings to pick a country. 
And I don't know what's happened with that with the other five prayer meetings, but I know that in a Monday morning one, we have not stopped praying for Saudi Arabia every single Monday for eight years. And I'm believing, we, and we weren't even going to pick Saudi Arabia, I was going to pick Algeria or something like that, because it seemed cooler at the time. But somehow the Lord picked Saudi Arabia for us, and my prayer is that there will be a church in the city of Mecca. Now that's my prayer. Mecca is the city in the world, which is the pilgrimage city for Muslims. Muslims have to go there once in their lifetime, otherwise they're not a good Muslim. And they, you know, they're not going to go to the Muslim heaven if they don't go to Mecca in their lifetime. But um, it's, it's banned to go there if you're a Christian. They've actually got gigantic signs on the highway. If you're in Arabia and you're driving towards Mecca, it's like there's an exit. Christians, exit here. You don't go into the city. You go right around and you keep going on the other side. And uh, there was a Christian um, who was discovered there in, was it 2007? And promptly never heard of again. So that type of thing goes on in Mecca. Well, we've been praying for Mecca to get a church. But what do you think is going to happen with prayers like that? Hey, stuff can change. God can change things. And I just, I'm so astounded at the way communism fell in 1986. I was just a kid. I went to school one day. Our teacher put on BTN behind the news. Children still watch BTN. And we we're watching this wall falling down. I had no understanding of, you know, the Berlin Wall or any of this. But that was a profound moment. And that was brought about by millions of Christians who prayed for quite a number of decades for communism to collapse. You know, Brother Andrew used to go all through those countries smuggling in his Bibles, and then he would come and travel through America and Australia, and every church he would go to, he would say, pray. Christians all around the world by their millions were praying for the collapse of communism, and it collapsed. Boy, did it collapse. Now, sure, there's still communism in the world, but it's not the communism that it was before. Even in China, they only pretend to be communist. They're capitalist. The building, I saw a picture of Shanghai in 1986. You know, look at the, you know, the town of Shanghai, the city of Shanghai. Go to Google Shanghai 1986 and Google Shanghai now and look at the two. One is like this flat city with just houses. The other is metropolis with skyscrapers. That's capitalism right there. Some of the world's richest people are Chinese billionaires like Alibaba and stuff like that. Unbelievable. They only pretend to be communist. No, they believe in capitalism <laughs> secretly. No, unbelievable. Unbe secretly, yes. They still have that kind of communist party structure where they govern, but people are free to go get jobs, people are free to make money, like it's just different to what it was before. Um, prayers brought that change about. And even in, e in East Germany where the Berlin Wall collapsed, there was a church there, and I've forgotten the name of it, but there was a priest in that, it was a Lutheran church, and his name was Father Nicholas, and they started a prayer meeting for peace. What they were believing for was that the east and west sides of Germany would be united and become one country again. So these people in East Germany at this Lutheran church were praying for that. They started praying with just three or four people, and then as the years went on, more and more people kept joining that prayer meeting until there was this one Monday night well, there was like a few thousand people gathered outside the church, right near the wall. And, you know, someone just decided to, hey, start chipping away at the wall. And the German guards that were there just didn't shoot for some reason. And next thing, the wall was coming down. Well, that was a prayer meeting that started all of that. Started by Lutherans, but also encouraged by the prayers of millions of Christians all around the world. 
No, these are the types of things that happen when Christians pray and the world is getting better. Doesn't mean that there aren't hiccups like COVID or Russia decides to attack the Ukraine. Of course there's hiccups, but then there's millions of Christians that pray too. It was like when those 11 or 12 or 13 kids got trapped in that cave in Thailand and they were saying, impossible. Oh no, there was millions of people praying. Of course they were going to get out. <laughs> well, this is what happens when millions of people with a, who actually care start praying for something. It's powerful. So, I'm saying all of that to say that there's reason for optimism. There's reason for hope. We have a king on the throne. He's with us. There may be difficult days, but the king knows they're coming. The king is with us. There's long-term good ahead. And at the start of this year, my mother got a word and she said, if we were not a listening people, we would not survive the year. It sounds terrible. <laughs> sounds like, oh no, it's going to be bad. Well, there are bad things happening, but the point is that we have a king and he speaks. You know the queen, she only spoke after problems happened, but we have a king who speaks before problems happen. And we have a king who speaks while problems happen. And we have words like that to tell us to listen to our king. Because good is supposed to happen and we're supposed to listen to that king so that we will hear what he says and we will pray because the world is supposed to be a better place and if Christians will listen to their king, it will be. You know, even if they don't and we pray afterwards, it'll still be better than it was if we didn't. But we have a word telling us to listen. Now I have one more photo to show for you today. Now, this is a nice little photo. This is the queen on her balcony. And I think this is her diamond or her platinum jubilee. Remarkable that she even had those diamond and platinum jubilees. So silver jubilee is 25 years king or queen, 50 years is golden jubilee, I think 60 years is platinum. Is it platinum? It must be diamond, and platinum must be the 70 year. It, there's a lot of stuff goes into all this royal thing. But anyway, big event here. They come out on their balcony, wave across to the crowd, but then they often will say something. And I thought this is the perfect picture for us going into the week of listening prayer. That's our king. He's standing on the balcony, and we are going to gather this week to listen to him. We're not going to gather in the building this week because, you know, they're working on the wall and it's kind of hard to listen. Jonathan, Jonathan and I tried listening last week and I was like, bang, 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 and someone yelling out, hey, have you got the string line? And it's like, ah, we're going to do our week of listening prayer virtually next week. But it doesn't matter whether you're sitting in your lounge chair at home or you're sitting in the lunchroom at work because it's your lunch hour or you're at school and you've gone and found a quiet place, you know, on the oval doesn't matter where you are, you're gathered like this in this picture before the king. You're gathered before the king to listen to him as he speaks. Now, if the queen was or the queen, or now the king, was to come to Rockhampton, she'd be very unlikely. But if he were was, I would definitely be going to see him, and I'm sure you probably would be as well. If the king was going to drive down the main street of Rockhampton, we would go. If the king was going to stand you know, on the roof at the council and, and give a speech, we would all be there to listen. 
Just because he's such a significant person, he's an important person, he's our king after all, the king of Australia, we would go and give him our ears. And the Lord Jesus Christ is on his balcony this week and we are gathering to listen to him and I think it would be rude not to. That's just my opinion. I think it would be rude to not give him that respect that he deserves. If he's got something to say, we should listen to it, don't you think? After all, he's only got our best interests in heart. So, I'm going to conclude with this thought. Mum's word at the start of the year was, if we would listen, we would survive the year. Now that sounded a bit daunting to me at the time, and I thought, oh, we better listen. And it kind of sounds like, to me, God's going to say something, and we have to hear the thing he's going to say, because there's like some key piece of information we've got to know, and if we don't know that key piece of information, we're going to miss something, and then we'll struggle because of that. That's kind of my natural first impression. But Jonathan and I, we were talking about it this week, and I've come to a very different conclusion. I've realised it's a promise. It's got nothing to do with whether we actually hear him say anything or not. He said, if we listen, we will survive the year. You notice he didn't say, if we hear, we will survive the year. He didn't say, if you hear what I have to say to you, you will survive the year. No, he just said, if we listen, that's really good news. Because you can be terrible at listening to God, you just got to do it. If you listen to God and don't hear a thing, if the whole entire time is full of you just daydreaming, well, hey, you tried. The promise of God wasn't on how good a job you did of listening. It was just that you listened. Right? It's a promise. And it, for me, that's the wonder of the God we've got. He's a God that makes it so easy for us. He makes it as simple as possible. Now, my guess is that when we listen, we're going to hear things. But even if we don't, it's a promise. If you listen, you will survive the year. I don't completely know what it means, but I know that it's basically the Lord giving us, he's saying, listen to me and I will bless you. That's basically the simplest way I can boil it down to. I think that's very, very encouraging. So this week, we're going to have a week of listening prayer. And I want this sermon as basically A, an encouragement that we have a great, great king. He's on the throne. Things are good. There may be some things that happen along the way that are not good. But hey, he didn't catch God by surprise. So we keep trusting him and he'll take us through. And then that encourages us to be a listening people because he has things to say. So what we've done is we've set up a Facebook page for peace. It's called Listening Prayer at Peace. Now I did a little test. This may possibly be the first Facebook page I've ever set up. At the moment it only has one member, me. And, um, but I typed in Listening Prayer into Facebook groups and there were like four or five of them all around the world. So other people have done this before, but there's none called Listening Prayer at Peace. There's only one of those. So if you go to Facebook and you type in Listening Prayer at Peace, you'll find a page with only one member, that's me, Join that page, and the idea is that you just be a listening person, but if the Lord gives you something encouraging, like a scripture, 
or some encouraging thought, you just post it on the page for us all. Now, I know not everyone uses Facebook, that's fine, I'm not telling you to join Facebook if you don't want to. Um, but it's a way that we can kind of see um, who else is listening. And um, now sometimes someone might get a directional word. Like someone might get a word that the Lord's telling us to do something. Or getting a word for someone else, don't post those words on, the, on that Facebook page. That page is only for words that are encouraging and scriptural kind of within those boundaries. If you get something that's outside of those boundaries, something that seems like it might be negative and you just want it checked or thought about just in case or a word that's like a direction for someone's life, that's not the place to put those words. That those words you send to mailatpeace.org.au and we can pray about it together and see was it the Lord or was it just you making stuff up? Because we all do just make stuff up sometimes. Sometimes you're there in listening prayer and your mind's daydreaming and you say, was it the Lord or was it me? Well, sometimes it's you. So if it's questionable, definitely do not post it on the Facebook page. That's one for us to just consider. And you know, with words of direction, sometimes if several people get them, we know the Lord's really saying something. So then that's when we can share it more widely. So um, I would encourage you to do something like this. I would encourage you to consider your week and find a moment every day for maybe 5, 10 or 15 minutes to have some daily listening prayer. Now this could be first thing in the morning, could be your lunch hour. If you're at work and you've got lunch hours every day and you have half an hour, maybe spend 10 minutes of that in listening every day in your lunch hour. And just make that a part of your daily habit. Feel free to even post on the page and just say, hey everyone, this is how I'm doing my listening. And it just means that we'll all get a sense of how many people are involved and, and what they're doing. And the beauty thing about doing virtual listening is all the people who are part of peace but don't live here, um, you know, people who feel connected in the heart, they can join in on this week of listening prayer too. So I think that's really, really good. So I encourage you to do that. If you can't do it daily because your life just doesn't allow it, I would encourage you to find one good slot in the week and, and put an hour aside for listening prayer or half an hour aside for listening prayer. I, it would be really good if everyone could do an amount of listening. So in the same way that we've been encouraging everyone to give something to the building renovation, even if you're a kid and you're only giving 50 cents from your pocket money, even if... You know, even if it's only something small, and even if you're just a kid here listening to me today and you don't even know how to listen, well, tell your mum or dad, mum or dad, I'm gonna listen before I go to bed tonight, and let's have everyone try to do some listening this week so it's a church-wide activity, okay? And then let your mum and dad know and they can post it on Facebook and say, you know, my this is what my children were doing for listening this week, something like that. So that's my encouragement to you. What I want to do right now is I want you all to take just 10 seconds and to decide right now when you're going to listen, okay? I think if you decide right now, then you'll actually do it. If you decide to think about it later, then you won't. So can you all just take 10 seconds right now and decide when you're going to listen? And meanwhile, I'll have the band come back.
Alright, have we all decided when we're going to listen? Put up your hand if you've decided. That's a good bunch. Put up if your hand if you have not yet decided. <laughs> yep, not me. <laughs> not me. No, right. And I noticed here on my phone, it's just binged. Someone has already asked to join the Facebook page. You can't find it. Really? It's called Listening Prayer at Peace. Go to groups. Go into groups in Facebook and try looking there. That's what the problem was. They weren't listening. Um, or maybe, it's, maybe it is a page. My wife is sending me Facebook advice and she's way better at this than me. Um, it could be a page. It might actually be a page. Try all of those options. It'll be one of those. And uh, it might be a page. All right, so um, I'm so glad to see all those hands have gone up this week. You know what, I think when a whole group of people does something together for Christ, it produces a result. He's ready. And we're going to sing in just a sec. Um, in the Old Testament, the Tower of Babel, you know, all those people decided they were going to build that tower together and God had to stop them because he didn't want the tower built. But the tremendous unity of it all was really powerful. Well, if we as a whole church listen to God, that's a really powerful thing to do. And I'm excited by doing that together. So let us pray. Lord, we say thank you for the hand of God at work in the world. Thank you for this book and all the graphs that are so encouraging. I thank you, Lord, that you're at work, uh, Lord, in the city of Rockhampton. You're changing things here. And Father, I pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done and we would see your hand more and more. I pray it would become more obvious even to unbelievers. I pray even to humanists like these people that wrote this book, may their eyes be open to see the gospel power at work. And so Father, build your church and let the gates of hell not prevail. And Lord, as we listen this week, I pray we would hear the voice of the Lord. Let your voice be clear to us in Jesus' name. Amen.